0: Good morning! Today is Sunday, the second day of October 2016. Sometimes dreams can appear to come true. Then those dreams are ripped away and destroyed right in front of your eyes. Today we tell the story of Richard Stanley in the making of the film The Island of Dr. Moreau on the 107th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee Coffee with Jeff.
1: Coffee with Jeff.
0: It's Sunday, Time for Coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. You know, I really enjoyed Season 3 of BoJack Horseman, and I'm looking forward to Season 2 of Ash vs. the Evil Dead. So tell me, what have you been watching lately? So, full disclosure on today's story. I became interested in the making of the 1996 film, The Island of Dr. Moreau, while listening to Mark Maron's podcast. He interviewed Ron Perlman, you know, from Beauty and the Beast and Sons of Anarchy. Anyway, he was in this version of Dr. Moreau. He played the Slayer of the Law. And he told a little bit about what happened during that production. He didn't go into a lot of it, but just enough to pique my interest, so I began to look up more information. Wikipedia had a surprisingly large amount of information, and I came across a few other sources. I quickly realized that this would be the next episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Then I learned that there was a documentary on the making of this film called Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. And surprise, surprise, it was on Netflix. So, the bottom line is, a lot of the information on today's story came from that documentary. Not all, but a lot. So what I'm trying to say is, if you want today's story told in a lot more detail, from people who were actually there, then watch the film. If you want the story condensed into about 15 minutes and only hear the sounds of my soothing voice, then listen to this podcast. Uh Uh-oh, looks like we got a bit of Bigfoot news. The headline reads, Bigfoot expert says creature highly likely present in Oklahoma. Yes, folks in Oklahoma, watch out. According to WTVC News Channel 9 from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Lyle Blackburn, a cryptozoologist, says, I put Oklahoma way on the top of the list of places that could truly be a habitat for an animal like this. By the way, a cryptozoologist is a person who studies animals that haven't been proven to exist, like Sasquatch or the Chupacabra. I've never understood this. I always felt that maybe you should know an animal is real before you can have a job to study it. And for the record, the cryptozoologist Lyle Blackburn is also the lead singer-guitarist for the western horror punk band Ghoul Town. I wondered, which does he use to pay the bills, his punk band or looking for Bigfoot? Hmm. I wonder. Anyway, let's get on to my story of the making of the 1996 film, The Island of Dr. Moreau.
1: This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. My name's Richard Stanley. I'm a filmmaker. Um, I've made several feature films, um, notably a exploding android movie called Hardware. I also had a famous fight with Val Kilmer 25 years ago that screwed up my career. Uh, otherwise, i make documentaries.
0: This is the most outrageous
1: spectacle I have ever witnessed. Look at yourself. I understand that I must be shocking to you. However, I must also point out that I have an allergy to the sun, and that's why I put this medication on. Look at these people!
0: Look at him! Richard Stanley was born on November 22, 1966 in Fishhawk, South Africa. He is a descendant from the famous 19th century journalist and explorer of Africa, Sir Henry Morton Stanley. As a child of four or five, he read and fell in love with the H.G. Wells' 1896 book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, the story of a doctor who creates sentinel beings from animals by the way of vivisection. As time went on, Stanley became disappointed in the two Previous film adaptions of the book and dreamed that one day he would be able to make the film right. He began filmmaking when he was in high school as a member of the Young Filmmakers Workshop. There he created a Super 8 10 minute short film called Rites of Passage. Rites of Passage went on to win the the IAC's International Student Film Trophy Film Award in 1984. His next project was the 45-minute film Incidents in an Expanding Universe, a film set in a future dystopia. In 1990, he created the low-budget post-apocalyptic science fiction horror film Hardware. He made this for about $1.5 million, and the film grossed over $6 million, making Stanley one of the hottest young filmmakers in the world. In 1992, he did another low-budget film called Dust Devil. In 1996, he was ready to begin his dream film, making a big-budget adaption of the story he wanted to make ever since he was a boy, The Island of Dr. Moreau. After spending four years developing the project, he received the green light from New Line Cinema to begin production as both writer and director. His first choice to play the key role of the Doctor was Jurgen Prochnow, but instead Marlon Brando was cast. What he didn't know at the time was New Line Cinema was never comfortable with him as director and was attempting to entice Roman Polanski to take over. Once Stanley learned of this, he was furious and demanded to meet with Brando. Stanley, who was in a panic, also turned to witchcraft. He knew a warlock in England named Dr. James Featherstone, who was known to his friends as Skip. He went to Skip and said, you've got to save my movie. Skip performs some sort of a ritual to make everything all right. Now, flashback to 1896, soon after H.G. Wells had published his book. His friend, Joseph Conrad, about a year later, came out with his book, Heart of Darkness. Wells accused Conrad of stealing the character of Kurtz from his character, Dr. Moreau. Conrad claimed his character was not based on Moreau, but based on the famous explorer Sir Henry Morton Stanley, who happened to be the great-grandfather of Richard Stanley. Now, Brando, of course, played Kurtz in the Francis Ford Coppola film Apocalypse Now, which was loosely based on the book Heart of Darkness. So, needless to say, when the two men met at Brando's home, they had plenty to talk about. And it didn't take long before Brando was convinced due to Stanley's knowledge and understanding of the novel, that he was the right man to make the film. Whether this had anything to do with a warlock spell, I can't say. Now, with Brando behind him, Stanley was the director. Yet he felt he needed a big-name movie star. Now, while Brando was a big name, he wasn't the kind of actor who brought in moviegoers. Now, luckily, Stanley was able to sign Bruce Willis to play Edward Prendick, the man who washes up on Moreau's island after his plane crashes. And then, after a chance meeting at a restaurant, James Woods signed on to play Montgomery, Moreau's chief assistant. Stan Winston was hired for the creation of the makeup and costumes for the strange high-bred creatures and also worked on locations and sets. The film was heavy into pre-production and Richard Stanley couldn't have been more excited. It was his dream project becoming a reality. But he was already having problems with New Line Cinema, as they thought his ideas for the human beasts were more disturbing than they would have liked and encouraged him to tone it down a little. And then the first in a series of bad things began to happen. As they got ready for principal photography, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore got divorced, and this caused Bruce Willis to drop out of production. Val Kilmer was hired to take over the lead role. Kilmer was a huge star at the time who had just come off a massive success with Batman Forever. His addition to the cast would be something that Stanley would soon regret. In fact, he called this decision a strategic error on his part and said it was the beginning of the end. It wasn't long after Kilmer signed on that he demanded a 40% reduction in shooting days, saying that he didn't have enough time to devote to this project. Stanley had no choice into giving in because to have another star back out as Bruce Willis had done probably would have been the end of the project. His solution was to switch roles, giving Kilmer James Wood's part as Moreau's apprentice, a part that took less shooting days. James Woods then left the film, and Rob Moreau from the TV show Northern Exposure took over the lead part of Edward Prendick. The chosen location for the film was in the rainforest outside of in North Queensland, Australia. Once at the location, the process of casting and creating all the hybrid beasts began. One man who was cast was Nelson De La Rosa, the shortest man on Earth from the Dominican Republic. They had seen him on TV and thought that a size of 2 feet 4 inches would be perfect for one of the smaller creatures. The whole cast, except for Val Kilmer, seemed to get along very well with Stanley and enjoyed working with him, but the studio executives began to worry, as it seemed they would have to force him to attend production meetings. And then on April 19, 1995, Cheyenne Brando, Marlon's daughter, who had suffered through drug addiction and never recovered from her half-brother murdering the father of her child, committed suicide by hanging herself at her mother's home. She was only 25 years old. Because of this, there was a question of whether Brando would show up on time or if he would show up at all. Brando was Stanley's only ally, and without him, Stanley knew that he was in trouble. Without Brando there, they began shooting the early scenes that took place before Dr. Moreau enters the film. This involved Val Kilmer, and for whatever reason, whether Kilmer just didn't want to be there or didn't like Richard Stanley, things didn't go well. Many of the cast accused Kilmer of challenging Stanley in almost everything he did and more of a power play type thing rather than concern over the actual film. He was, in many people's opinion, rude and abrasive, constantly bullying the director. Kilmer, who was always smoking a cigarette and trying to look cool, would later explain that his behavior on the set was brought on by hearing that his wife was suing him for divorce. The next problem was an unexpected hurricane, which caused a lot of damage to the set's. The only indoor set that was completed that they might have been able to film in was Moreau's house. But at this point, Brando hadn't shown up, so for a while, nothing was really being filmed. And they said Stanley walked around all day a nervous wreck. And then star Rob Moreau saw that things were not going good and called up his lawyers to try to get him out of the film. The tensions on the set and the fact that he couldn't deal with being away from his family for so long were the cause he telephoned New Line Cinema's chairman, Rob Shea, in Hollywood and tearfully begged him to be let go of his contract. New Line agreed, so they quickly brought in British actor David Thrulis to replace him. It was on the third day of filming that New Line gave the order to put the production on hold. According to Stanley, it was during this time that New Line began to really look into the script, something they hadn't done before, and noticed things like, Sex with animals and animals on drugs. Things they didn't think were appropriate for this film. They began sending him a series of faxes of changes they wanted made. Faxes which Stanley said he threw right into the fire. Then Richard Stanley received the most devastating fax. It was to let him know that he was being removed from the project. His dream of making his favorite novel into a movie was over. He was so upset that he went into his room and began shredding every document or note he had on the project. In no way did he want to help anybody who might take over the project. Many reasons were given for his firing, or at least rumored about why he was fired. Like he was erratic and he was unwilling to deal with studio executives. But perhaps the main reason was his inability to get Val Kilmer under control. His removal sent shockwaves through the cast and crew. New Line Cinema still wanted to make the film, even though Stanley was done, so they offered him a deal. He was offered his full director's fee, on the condition that he left the production quietly and did not speak about his firing. He was ordered off the set and given a plane ticket to fly back to England, but after being driven to the airport, he never got on the plane and disappeared. This upset the New Line executives who were worried that Stanley would make problems. Rumors began to surface that he had talked to some of his aboriginal friends who were putting a curse on the production and that he might attempt to blow up the sets or use some other form of sabotage. The cast and crew began to sit around and wait till New Line figured out just what they wanted to do. To many in the crew, Stanley's firing wasn't the end of the nightmare, it was just the beginning. John Frankenheimer was an old-school, no-nonsense type of director who was a huge name back in the 1960s. He had made such films as Grand Prix, Seven Days in May, The Maturian Candidate, and The Birdman of Alcatraz. During the 1980s, he made a bunch of unforgettable films, which many have attributed to his heavy drinking. He attempted to make a comeback in the 90s by working in television, in which he made several successful projects. Frankenheimer, who not only wanted to get back into films, but also wanted to work with Brando, met with Brando about the job. According to Ron Perlman, who played the slayer of the law in the film, Brando, who had never worked with Frankenheimer before, said, maybe it's time for you to get back to what you lost. And since every other director that New Line approached turned the film down, Frankenheimer got the job. The thing is, this isn't the kind of film that Frankenheimer was known to direct, and Frankenheimer hated the script. He immediately began having rewrites done. Of course, production couldn't wait for all the rewrites, so as filming started up, new pages were constantly being wrote. When actor Marco Hofschneider asked him during dinner what his vision was for the film, Frankenheimer responded, Vision, that's an overused word. I'm telling you, it's not about a vision. I'm trying to tell a story here, okay? Actress Faruza Bach said, Things went from I need your help on the first day to screaming and yelling four days later. Things didn't change all that much with the new director and the shooting dragged on for months. New Line chairman Bob Shea said that he knew it was going to be insane and they would just be lucky to finish the film with a beginning, middle, and end. John Frankenheimer was so hard on the Australian crew that the crew began wearing shirts that had a line from the film printed on them. They said, You don't have to obey these bastards. They're not gods. When Brando arrived a week late, he was dressed for the role, to everybody's surprise, in total white. White linen wrapped around his body, covering himself in white paint. He wore white gloves with a white hat with cloth draped down over his neck, some white headpiece that covered most of his head except his face, and he wore dark sunglasses. He explained that this was all due to the sun, while his costume was bizarre, it did allow for the easy use of a stand-in for those days when one was needed. On most days, Marlin would just stay in his air-conditioned trailer, only coming out to do a scene when he was ready, leaving all the other actors dressed in their heavy animal costumes to bake in the heat while they waited. When he did get on the set, he would suggest any idea that popped into his head, and usually these suggestions were acted upon no matter how crazy they were. Brando also loved the small man, Nelson De La Rosa, and began taking away other actors' lines and giving them to Nelson. He even started to make sure that they were dressed alike on the set. When Feruza Balk asked Brando if they could talk about their characters and how they relate, Brando said, No. This is all nonsense. I'm getting paid, you're getting paid. None of the scripts make any sense, so why worry? You know, just relax. Just do what you're doing. You're beautiful. Don't worry about it. And then he admitted to her that he had actually never read the script. And because he didn't know the script, he wore a little earpiece so his assistant could feed him the lines during takes. In fact, there are so many strange stories of Brando during this production that I can't tell them all here and it turned out that Val Kilmer and Brando didn't get along, so much so that on one day, each one would not leave their trailer until the other one did so first. The cast and crew just waited around for Kilmer or Brando to make the first move. Kilmer and Frankenheimer didn't get along, and they were constantly arguing. Frankenheimer later said, I don't like Val Kilmer, I don't like his work ethic, and I don't want to be associated with him ever again. Then he was quoted as saying to the press, in reference to Val Kilmer, There are two things I will never do in my whole life. The first is I will never climb Mount Everest. The second is I will never work with Val Kilmer ever again. And then he said, If I was making the Val Kilmer story, I wouldn't hire that prick. Val Kilmer was described by one of the cast members as acting like a prep school bully. One of the famous stories was Kilmer burning the focus puller's hair with a cigarette during a take. Frankenheimer was brought in partly because Stanley couldn't handle Kilmer, but it seems Frankenheimer couldn't handle either Kilmer or Brando, and all three ended up hating each other. So whatever happened to Richard Stanley, the original director... Well, as the film progressed, he was camping out in the rainforest on a land owned by a farmer near Mary River. It was a beautiful spot, and he was living in isolation. One day he discovered people camping downriver, and they turned out to be extras from the film. A few of the crew members heard about this and went looking for him. They wanted Stanley to come back to the set with them, but he said he couldn't because that would have violated his agreement with New Line and they could refuse to pay him. But eventually he did go back in secret and with a little help from his friends became an extra wearing a dogman costume and as filming went on a lot of the cast and crew who didn't know he was there was beginning to wonder who was this extra who would never take off his mask even to get a drink of water. As you might have guessed the island of Dr. Moreau was a horrible film and it bombed at the box office. Richard Stanley disappeared for years with no interest in ever making another film. Then, in an interview in LA Weekly in February 2015, Richard Stanley said that there is interest in making a new version of Dr. Moreau. He said, At this stage, it looks very likely. It's too early for me to name the company involved, but I was actually put under contract in January to write a new draft of The Island of Dr. Moreau which has already been completed and delivered. It looks like there's still hope that his dream could be realized.
1: This is going to be a huge project and this is going to propel Richard Stanley into the superstardom that he deserves as an auteur.
0: New Line tried in different ways to
1: contain the material. No, I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about the project, frankly. There was some lunatic movie that's known as one of the worst films ever made. Marlon
0: Brando and Val Kilmer were there to mess with the film as much as possible. He wanted an ice bucket on top of his head.
1: He'd covered himself in white paint. I
0: think that's how the whole mini-me thing developed of Marlon adopting this little guy. As it went on, it descended into more and
1: more kind of madness. I knew that this was going to be totally insane and that we were going to be hugely lucky if we just finished a film with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack.
0: As I researched this and read interviews and watched videos on the making of this film, one thought kept going through my mind, and it's it's one thought that I've had in the past, and that's, when did Marlon Brando just give up? You know? I remember watching the making of Apocalypse Now, the Hearts of Darkness documentary, and He promised Coppola that he would show up fit and knowing all those lines and having read the book Heart of Darkness, and he did none of that. For all the millions he was getting paid, all Coppola could do was put him in that room and just have him basically interview him. Marlon talk about this, Marlon talk about that, and just try to get something out of him. There was when he was paid all that money to do the original Christopher Reeve Superman, and he didn't know any of his lines, and they had to post cue cards all over the set so we could walk around and read his cue cards. I mean, there was one time where Marlon Brando was a passionate actor who, who took his acting very seriously. And I'm sure when he did On the Waterfront or any of his classic films that he desperately, passionately wanted to make good movies. Okay, so then when he does these movies later in his career, he has a contempt for the movie industry or contempt about his profession as an actor however people describe it but did he ever think about the other actors the young actors who were involved in the productions that he was hired to be in about how this project might be important to them that they might want to have a successful film to put on their resume was it just ego that made it all about marlin and what he thought and i don't know the guy seemed to be nuts in his later years I mean, what was the last film that he really tried in? Was it the original Godfather? I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with his sad personal life, with all the problems he had. You know, who can really say? It's just what the the question I, that goes through my head is: Was there a point? Was it one day he's like? I don't care about this anymore, I'm just going to have fun with it? Or was it a slow progression into madness? In a way, was he Kurtz from Apocalypse Now? (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, we can only hope that maybe someday somebody will make a version of The Island of Dr. Moreau and do justice to the novel, if that's possible. You know, if you enjoy the show, you can thank all those that sponsor PsyCon. If you'd like to help us with some of the costs of running a podcasting network, you might think about becoming a sponsor, and you can do that by visiting our Patreon page. Just go to psycon.fm, that's csico nfm for more information. And, of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the network. And speaking of PsyCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. On the latest episode of The History Files, Gordon and Nancy tell stories about Gordon's background working on various film and television projects over the years. Very interesting stuff, or at least I thought so. Anyway, you can check out this show and many others over at the website, alright? And, you know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. If you want to, just email me and tell me what movies or TV shows you're watching lately and why. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, which you're encouraged to enjoy. And if you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and we understand that, then just go over to iTunes, will you, and leave me a review. I've only got a few, and those reviews really do help the show. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write this episode can be found at PsyCon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the PsyCon Network. To my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years. David Metzger for creating the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme song. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. It's so appreciated. And a special shout-out to all of you who repost this on Facebook and Twitter or tell your friends about it, whatever. Thank you so much. I'll be back next week with hopefully a fun and an exciting episode. Coffee Bye. With Jeff. Coffee,
1: coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee, coffee with with I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back coffee, coffee, with coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff, Jeff. Coffee coffee with Jeff. Jeff girl from Town, Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, or coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, for coffee, coffee, coffee with Jeff Years go by Times your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, Want coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.